Consummate athletes seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Take 93. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Yeah, you would think we were joking, but but we're not. DW's excited. The slow cooker is beeping. We're here. We're trying to get the audio quality for you, bringing it to the people. Yep. Uh, we're you know here. What? Shout out to the, the kitchen gadgets that we can't live without. The Instant Pot has been just fantastic for winter. It's so good for making just really quick, cozy meals. That and small dogs that we apparently can't live without. As well. Also cozy <laughs> for the winter. But DW is handling the winter well. He is. He, he likes to dig, right? So he's doing okay with the snow so far. We'll see the temperatures are getting colder. It's coming up. So we've been spending a fair bit of time indoors. Uh, so the treadmill's getting a lot of use. The rollers are getting a lot of use. Yeah, uh, actually, today we we had posted an Instagram of the two of us doing our indoor training, and I'd like to point out so- someone else pointed out that someone had taken all the fans. Yes, bogarting the fans downstairs. Well, Joe Friel told me I needed fans, so I'm making sure I stick to. I was I was gonna call him Uncle Joe. I don't know Joe that well, but stick to Uncle Joe's advice. Yeah. So you actually, I think that was Jim Rupberg that gave you that indoor trainer advice. I think they both did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in the book. Uh, so yeah, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're training away. What are you watching? How are you sticking? You know, it gets boring on the treadmill. What do you watch? You know, you'd think it would get boring on the treadmill, but I have been reliving my adolescence by rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And let me tell you, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. And one of the takes of this episode that we tried to do, I, I was saying that I, I was surprised about the intro music is much more punk than I remember for the Buffy the Vampire. I'm telling you, the WB shows of the mid to late 90s were actually like super punk. If you look like Seventh Heaven. OK, maybe not Seventh <laughs> Heaven. Might have actually had a club in it, too, though. So a club. The, weirdly, the trademark of all of these shows like Charmed and Buffy and a bunch of other CW shows is there was always like a teen club in town. So there was always like a new band playing each show. So every time you watch the show, there's like this one, like a different small band from the 90s playing. Hmm. So it's actually like a weirdly good way to get into music back then. Um, but yeah, I've I've been deeply enjoying Buffy. I think it's just enough action adventure for me to like get really psyched on my my intervals on the treadmill. I did mm-hmm. not do that though on Wednesday when I had my actual like hard effort. Yeah, run. she did a five k, a five kilometer yeah. TT. Let me tell you, I was thinking through our episode on bad workouts the entire time. Uh, and thank goodness we did that episode last Tuesday because I'm pretty sure I would have bailed on that uh, that 5K at about a mile and a half in. But because we'd done that and it was fresh in my brain, when it started to get hard, I was able to kind of reset myself. Yeah. And then today the Cyclocross World Cup, the final round, uh, happened. So that's what I watched while I was on the rollers. And that was also good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was Overeis, the mother of crosses. It's the longest running cross race in Belgium. Uh, we have fond memories of being there. Although you it do. took us a while to figure yeah, out which I'm course I'm still it not was. convinced I was there. But, I'm pretty sure you were there. But I do remember actually driving there, so I was I, probably there. I have fond memories of it because that's the day a fan thought I was Sonicant. So that was one of like the better days in you my... You say that as if it only happened once. It happened once in Belgium. It's happened a lot at like U.S. races right. that she's at. Right, right. But anyway, 
Um, okay, so what are we up to today? We have, uh, I think, a, a, you know, we asked just for uh, episode ideas here just recently, and the idea of sort of ultra endurance came up. And we'll try and get a few more people on. Um, certainly, we've had people like Rebecca Roosh. Um, we've had a couple other sort of endurance, but there was sort of this endurance mountain biking. This today's guest is more on the ultra endurance uh, road, road side, side of, things. of things. Yeah, but I think still a lot of transferable ideas. Uh, from some of these endurance things, whether we've had, you know, Tim Rugg doing the, the indoor ride across America. So today's guest, Keith Morical, uh, who, uh, 60 years old, didn't do Ram. Instead, he rode his bike through 48 states in 31 days. So these are like continental states. Is that the reason for 48? Continental states, which adds up to about 250 miles per day. Okay. Uh, and he just had to like zigzag his way around yep. the continental USA. Mm-hmm. Okay. So actually, you're, you're going to love this. So I was the one who interviewed him. You're going to love the part talking about the route planning. Because okay. if you're trying to make the most efficient route around 48 states, there's a lot of like trail beta that goes into that. Yeah, I guess so. What Did he have to do DC? Is that like, how does that play into it? No. Maybe he did just for like good times. I think you'd probably have to go through it just from... Just to connect. Just to connect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the route planning would be quite tricky. I wonder if he didn't spell something like uh, with the Strava, you know how the people spell words? That'd be like the most intense. <laughs> yeah, probably not the most direct route. No. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting talk about that and just sort of all of the different thing, all of the different things that go into it, whether you're talking about riding at night or, you know, how he's fueling that whole situation or my personal favorite, how he managed to get through it sitting on the saddle that many hours that many days great question it comes back to your gut and your butt yep yep fair yep and so it actually that hits the two books that i have out fuel your ride and saddle store right giving the people what they want give the people what they want yeah uh yeah so i i really enjoyed chatting with him honestly i i wasn't really sure where this episode was going to take us and i was really really psyched about it i think we're gonna have to also do uh, an article maybe on Keith's top tips because I think he had a lot of like gems in this. So definitely keep an eye on consummateathlete.com for that coming after this episode. Um, oh, and before we get started, just a quick reminder that my Athlete's Guide to Sponsorship e-course is up on theprokit.com. You can check that out. Uh, yeah. And without further ado, let's get into this episode with Keith Morical. Yeah, let's let's get right into it. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, just kind of explain who you are and give us just the quick hit elevator pitch version of what exactly you did this summer. Well, uh, my name is Keith Moracle, and uh, I have been in professional development, human development all my life until about three years ago when I got into ultra endurance uh, racing and riding. And um, this last summer, I... Um, I decided I was going to try for a Guinness World Record on traveling to each of the 48 continental U.S. states um, the quickest. And my goal was to do it within a month. Um, And so I set off to do that. Uh, The interesting thing was that all of my previous rides had been unsupported. And this was, Guinness doesn't uh, distinguish between supported or unsupported. So I decided I might as well go take the advantage of having the support. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the amount of effort it took to obviously get ready for my supported race actually was was much greater uh, than than unsupported. And uh, so it was a whole new thing for me to 
who I've helped this year. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so, okay, first, I guess, let's let's back up. How, why go after this world record? I mean, there there's a lot that don't involve, you know, 200 plus miles a day on the bike for 31 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, uh, it was actually back in uh, the beginning, or just the, at the new year coming into 2018, I was working with a number of entrepreneurial organizations and uh, it's late at night and I, and I was um, thinking that uh, I was getting a little bored and I, I, I remembered something about the race across America back from my college days. And uh, so I looked at it, looked it up and found, oh, you still need all this crew and, you know, and, it, and all these other costs and so forth. And it just didn't seem like it was still quite right for me. And at that night, I found the Transamerica bike race, and that's unsupported uh, uh, across the U.S. Uh, single stage race. And I said, "That's for me." And I woke up the next morning and I started training for that one. And I and uh, that in '19, I did that race, ended up in second, and I felt like I had a little bit more in me. Like when it was done, I could have kept going. <laughs> Um, and, and I also did it, this is 4,200 miles. I also did it, um, with just goals of, uh, you know, like how many miles a day and how long I was going to sit on my bike and, and how I was going to try to, uh, control myself mentally and those kind of things. I didn't have a goal for how I was going to finish, but I ended up in second and I was like, wow, that, that that's really cool. <laughs> you know, surprising me and everybody else, I think. Um, and, um. And then that same year, I ended up, I went and did PVP, and then I did the North Star bike race, which is a single stage unsupported 630-mile race here in Minnesota. And um, and when I got done with that, that North Star, again, I felt like, gee, I still could continue to ride. So at the end of that year, I said, well, what am I going to do now? And, and, and I had done those very much for... Uh, personal reasons like it was like I'm doing this for me I'm, I I love to ride and I'm just riding and that's what I'm going to do and I felt guilty doing that so the next year when I was planning for 2020 uh, a year ago now um, I was thinking well <clears throat> I need to think about something long and I was thinking about the transcontinental but I hadn't ridden very much in in Europe and so I didn't know if I how comfortable I felt with with self-navigation um, until I had a chance to get over there and ride a little bit more. And I was looking at the Tour Divide uh, and the idea of sleeping outside for a couple of weeks just was not appealing <laughs> to me. I'm, I'm, I'm 60 years old, I like a bed. I mean, that's the way it is. Um, and so um, I've had this map up in my office for a while of the United States and another of the world with all of the routes that I've ever done that have been multi-day events or, or rides or tours. And one of my goals has been to hit all 50 states. And I was actually making some pretty good progress on that, as was. And I thought, what if I rode to all 50 states? And I looked that up, and I found that there was, in fact, a woman that held a record for doing that. I said, that sounds, that sounds good. I like that one. Um, and so... Um, I just uh, started putting it together from there um, and uh, and working forward. And I figured at uh, 
7,100 miles, that would be plenty long to test whether or not I still had anything left when it was all done or not. <laughs> oh so, my gosh. Yeah, so, so that's how I got there. I, I, I wanted to ride all 50 states and uh, I wanted to push myself to see Mm-hmm. If there was an upper limit there. In, mm-hmm. in okay, so you mentioned something very key here, and that's that you're 60 years old as you're doing this. Um, were you like an active kid, or have you been in cycling for your whole life, or when did you when did you come to it? Yeah, right. Uh, I I always love to ride bike. I mean, I just I I just enjoy it. Uh, but I was uh, I was a workaholic sitting at my desk for 50, 60 hours a week uh, for most of my professional career. Uh, but I would commute to work uh, two or three times a week in the spring, summer, and fall here in Minnesota. And and, uh, and I would do it for fun on the weekends. And, you know, I would think if I rode 1,000 miles in a year, I was doing like super duper good. Um, right up until I decided I was going to start training for the Trans Am. <laughs> it's a big jump. Uh, yeah, but but I am a pretty physical guy. I, I, uh, I sailboat race competitively, and I, you know, I, I, there's a ton of sports that I like to do, and or or dance or yoga, whatever. If it has to do with something physical, I've always enjoyed it. So okay, uh, it was a natural fit. In that That's regard. awesome. We've had, you know, we've had plenty of, you know, to be honest, younger guys who've been on who've you know, tackled big stuff like this. Although I think this might be the, the longest continuous ride that we're talking about. Um, but I think it, it's just so much cooler, honestly, to, to be talking to someone your age who's doing this, like not, not just still, but is starting to do this now. <laughs> yeah. You know, the funny thing is that so many people really latch onto that 60 and, and it's, yeah, it's it's obviously motivational for and inspirational for some people to see that. I mean, I just I don't feel like I'm sixty. You know, I just feel like I'm I'm just living my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's now I have a chance to do this, so I'm going to take advantage of it, basically. Yeah. And maybe maybe in the back of my head, there's now I have a chance to do this, and I might as well do it before I can't. <laughs> but but we'll see if and when that day comes. So. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so. The preparation going into this was it was it more than that first race? I mean, the the first race was more of like an actual race. So, but this must have been much more logistically difficult. How did you? How did the process go? How did you figure out where were you, like what route you were going to take and what you needed and what saddle to oh, use? Yeah. yeah, no, it was so wild. Uh, you know, I had I had because I wasn't a racer. I mean, my first event was the North Star bike race, which I ended up in second on. And, and that was just a few months before I did the Trans Am. So um, I didn't know about training. I didn't know about nutrition. I didn't know about uh, you know how to appropriately work out. I, I really was starting from just a love of biking and a, and a reasonably fit body. And, um, and so the year 2019 for the Trans Am, I spent a lot of time learning about kit. My bicycle was a a 1991 Trek touring bike up until I bought the bike I used for the Trans Am. Okay, so that's how big a changeover it was. I'm learning about carbon bikes. I'm learning about all sorts of, you know, fit. I'm learning about nutrition. And after um, about six months, I got a really good coach and I got a plug that 
anybody that wants to do this seriously should have a really good coach like you guys mm -hmm. um you know i mean it's just uh, uh that was really uh, infinitely helpful i happened to use greg grand george and i think he's immensely great and, uh, because i had heard about him through other channels but but i know that you guys do a fantastic job as well and um uh, so so that whole year doing to the trans am there was a race course in place there were people that had done it before that I could talk to. There was a, there was an actual course in place that I could just look at and 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 plan around. So all, I needed to learn how to ride my bike. I needed to learn how to, you know, what kit I needed and stuff like that. And that took a lot of energy, and, and I think I did it reasonably well. Um, when that was done, I mean, I was coming into now. Okay, now let's do forty eight states. And it was like, oh, okay, this is good. I'm going to need to train that much harder because it's uh, two thirds longer again than the Trans America bike race was. And um, and so I started going on that. But then I started realizing that I needed uh, to apply to Guinness. I needed to uh, determine the route. And what I did for that was I went online and I found the fastest route somebody had ever driven the 48 states ah. uh, and then of course a lot of that was on freeways which uh, many i couldn't go on and some of which were on roads that i just wouldn't be caught dead on mm -hmm. or i would be dead if had i ridden on and so i ended up pulling up riding with gps and literally going mile for mile all the way across the country and redoing the route using the basic parameters of what makes a short route and it's really funny because in this day and age of you know satellite imagery and all that stuff, two things. One is that there was a, there's a little science in how to make the shortest routes, which I found, and I started to talk to the people that were doing, trying to try to make the shortest route. And you know it's a little contest that's going on online, and so I started talking to them about their strategies on how they were doing that, and then I started to apply those strategies <laughs> to my route, and. Uh, but with, you know, and then the other thing with satellite imagery is you can literally put the little Google man down on the road and say, is there a shoulder here? You know, what kind of condition is this road? What kind of traffic level is there and stuff like that? And it literally took me six weeks full time just to put together the road. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous. But then things came up like I wanted a support vehicle. So I needed to buy an RV uh, temporarily or rent one or find one recruiting crew, COVID came on, you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, and then I had a videographer that wanted to join and that was like great, except for, you know, just more things to worry about. Yep. And then all the crew I had, well, <clears throat> we originally were gonna have two sets of crews so they could alternate. And then COVID came along and it was like, no, can't do that. Uh, we're gonna do a, a miniature two-person crew in an RV with me, and we would do a shelter in place all the way across the country so that we weren't spreading COVID. Mm -hmm. Well, that gets harder. And then when COVID really started to kick in, um, all of half of my crew decided they couldn't do it anymore. And for all non-COVID directly related reasons, but with it, Two weeks before I had to start, I was back out looking for crew. Oh my <laughs> so, and then retraining. And the funny thing was, none of my crew nor I had ever been on a supported bike race 
ever in our lives. So, I mean, we were all just learning from the get-go and luckily we, you know, we were all committed and we all did, yeah, in more ways than one. And, but, uh, and it worked out. So I would say the amount of effort it took to get ready for the 48 states versus the Trans Am was about 10 times the amount of effort just to, and the funny thing was that the training portion of it just took such a back seat. That was like, that was autopilot. Like I had a plan, I did my plan and then I got off and started doing my work to get ready for the race. <laughs> I love, I love being able to just talk about the fact that the, the planning for something like this is just as intense, honestly, as, as the actual doing of it. So I think so many people just kind of assume you just kind of go out and just get going and there you go. Um, oh yeah so true yeah so true so once you once you do get going can you just walk us through what like a typical day looked like from from start to finish yeah you know i use a strategy a little different than a lot of people that i noticed in the trans am and and that was you know they kind of get up at a time you know usually before sunrise and the ride until some time late in the evening or early morning and then you know kind of have a schedule I, I, my strategy was more to ride to the conditions. So if there's a front behind me, I want to stay in front of that front and don't get off my bike until it catches up to me kind of thing. Or if it's starting to rain, that's the time to get in the RV, take a nap and come out when it stops raining. Um, And uh, so consequently, my schedule varied quite a bit across the month. and but if there was a typical day, it would be I tend to get up slightly later than the average person because I ride better at night. Uh, I rode at this event anyway, I rode better at night. And um, and so I'd get up, you know, just around sunrise or just slightly after I would eat my first breakfast, um, uh, oatmeal or um, and some other carbohydrates and some juices and things to get me going. Um, and then I would ride for a couple hours to four hours and have my second breakfast. And the second breakfast was more of a bacon and eggs or some kind of egg sandwich uh, meal, a kind of thing, um, and ride for another four hour slot. And I always tried to ride it for four hour chunks. That just seemed to be, be what worked out for me best. And then I'd have my first lunch, um, and then I would do another chunk, and I'd do my second lunch, and then I would ride until sunset. And it was middle of summer, so sunset would be 9, 9.30, and I would stop for dinner. And that, and that would be the one time of the day that I would, for sure, always get off my bike, go into the van. Oftentimes, I'd even take a little shower. Um, and I would have a hot meal, like steak and potatoes and salad with a side of vegetables and, and some other carbohydrate and, and maybe four or five different drink options on the table all at one time. Nice. <laughs> um, and, and I so I would eat like a real, real meal. And that was my reset for the day. And then I would get back on the bike and I would start riding for the evening and uh, off, which would be so we could put lights on the bike and you know i'd change over my gear so i'd be wearing warmer clothing or and get going and that that first chunk of riding 
after dinner was always my best riding of the trip. And that would just carry on through the evening um, until I got to wherever I was going to stop. And <clears throat> basically my goal was to do a minimum of 220 miles a day. And so on a good day, I might have 180 miles or something before that dinner came on. And then I was like, oh, okay, so this is no big deal. And I could ride, easily get that 220 and then probably blow past it. Um, on a bad day, like headwinds or I got a bad start, or it was really hot and I was riding slower than I would have wanted to or whatever the case may be. I mean, I remember I would get to dinner and be under 120 miles for the day. <laughs> and it's like, well, I got to do another... 100 miles. I, I remember once I had to do 130 miles after dinner. And I was like, oh, okay, oh. whatever. So eat my meal, get on my bike, get going. And um, But knowing that I just had to do the 220 a day really kept me going. And so some of those days I could get done at two in the morning or something and then take a, uh, a short sleep, get up and do it again. Other days I might ride until sunrise. And and a few days I would just ride through the night and I'd just keep going the next day and start my next day right up. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's, that was my routine. Five meals, snacks between all of them, nonstop. More I ate, the better I rode. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, uh, I feel like that's such a big thing that I've realized, you know, as I'm coaching long camps, I've never done something quite like this, but it's amazing how much of a difference a snack can make. So I'm glad you're glad you're sharing this like elongated eating routine. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah no, I, it really is. And I, you know, the funny thing about eating, I mean, not all, everyone can consume as many calories as others can. And that is one advantage, one of maybe two or three advantages I have towards this sport is that I can eat and I can eat while I ride and I can eat a lot and I can eat continually and my stomach usually allows it to come in, processes it and uses it, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, really helpful. And what I would tend to eat is like breakfast type foods up until lunch, lunch type foods up until middle afternoon-ish frame, and then snacky foods until dinner. And then that dinner was always my reset because if I just went on with more biking type snacky foods, then all of a sudden I would get the uh, intestinal problems yeah. going, you know, they start up. But if I sat down and had real food, like a real meal, all of a sudden my body would say, okay, I'm good again. I can start over and, and it would be good for another 24 hours, basically, uh, no matter what else I put in it. Mm -hmm. And so, and then after that dinner meal, then I could eat whatever, you know, snacks whatever the rest of the day mm -hmm. or night to get me through so awesome um and okay yeah. so we have to talk about saddle stuff because 250 miles a day for 31 days uh, how did you avoid saddle sores or if you didn't how did you suffer through saddle sores yeah yeah uh, the year prior i suffered through them this year i i, I avoided them for the what? most part yeah yeah can you believe it um I, when I was, again, I'll just a little back history on the Trans Am. Um, you know, I was newer to training and whatever, and I, I had saddle stores. And I break saddle stores down into three things. One, your bottom, it hurts from sitting on the saddle. And that's usually a bike fit kind of issue. 
The second one is really where your skin is rubbing raw, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just getting raw. And, and that's mostly the type I, I uh, deal with. And that has to do with, you know, um, staying dry or chamois cream or the right kind of um, uh, uh, knickers you're wearing. Um, and then the third one are the saddle swords that are the little, that are the actual uh, jelly beans yep, under your yep, skin. Yep. <laughs> you know, that are just more as all get out and really are more, um, you know, bacterial based and, and so forth. Again, dry and clean are really the ways to prevent that. Well, in 2019, when I did the, the um, Transamerica, the, by week, week two, I had a nickel size that turned into a quarter Oof. size spot on my, my bottom that had no skin on it. It was skinless uh, for that whole sec second half plus of that race. And uh, to, to deal with that, you know, I had heard about the Aura Gel and da da da, -da which is a good approach. I use the, the, the um, Neosporin plus pain ointment. You know, first layer of that, and then I'd put some some chamois cream, let that sink in a little bit, then put some chamois cream on there, and then use a non-absorbent um, pad like you do for a for a scrape or something, and put that just kind of put that on there, not tape it on or anything. The you know shorts will keep it in place, and that's how I managed to numb it enough to be able to ride another. In that case, probably about twenty five hundred miles with no skin uh, right where I'm sitting on my saddle. That was less than fun. Yeah. And so when I got when I got done with that, I um, I really worked hard at getting rid of all of my skin problems in that region or on my body overall. And I had a really weak skin to begin with. This is a this is a bad thing for me just in general. And so when I started training for the 48 states, I would um, always immediately take my shorts off, take a shower, dry myself. I'd even dry myself with a hair dryer. Um, you know, yeah, you feel a little bit funny, but boy, it does a really good job of just getting your skin back to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, and and even on my trainer, if I'm if I was on my trainer for more than uh, three hours, let's say at a time, or four hours, if I was doing like an eight-hour trainer ride, which I might do on occasion. I would stop and change my shorts and wash myself and dry during my workout. Yep. Uh, so I just, it w I would not allow myself to sit in white shorts unless they were clean. And so um, on the 48 states, I, I mean, I was, I was so all over this. I had a hairdryer in the RV. I, I, had, I bought some extra shorts just for this. And I would go through maybe three pair a day. Mm -hmm. And I would take at least one shower, if not two a day, um, to really just make sure I was clean, I was dry, and I was ready to go. And then, of course, you know, you're riding out in 100 degree heat or 90 degree heat or whatever, you're, you're I was sweating like anyone would. And uh, um, so I did use a number of things. There was, uh, there's a product called Dermal 500 out of Europe, out of Great Britain, actually, that uh, the uh, British women's cycling team used uh, that's a antibacterial lotion and a soap substitute. 
if I was riding and I couldn't really stop to wash myself, I'd use that. That, that kills the bacteria. Um, that helped quite a bit. And then I'd put some chamois cream on uh, then. And uh, I would use chamois cream when I started to feel any kind of rubbing action, but I wouldn't use it before that point. So I, I would go for dry and clean as long as I could. And once that was no longer possible, then I would simulate clean with antibacterial lotion and I would simulate dry with chamois cream, basically. Oh, I love it. I've, I mean, I've literally written a book on this topic, so you're, you're saying all the right things. You've answered, you've answered perfectly. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Good job. <laughs> uh, okay, so, you know, we, we've talked about the, the physical side, but mentally, how did you stay in it? Like, how do you keep yourself mentally entertained or at least, I mean, just focused on the road for that many hours a day? Yeah, you know that that's really really weird. Uh, I was uh, I really liked to ride my bike, and it and it came across. I, I had toured across the country with my daughter and her partner Jared um, uh, back in 2016, and um, and there was always this running conversation of do we stop and smell the roses or do we ride further? And of course, I was on the ride further side, and those two were on the stop and smell the roses side more. And, you know, both with good arguments. And I found myself saying, you know, I just like to ride my bike. You know, I, this is the enjoyment mm -hmm. of doing this is riding. And uh, when I'm riding the 48 states, I had to remind myself a few times of that statement. Oh, yes, I'm, <laughs> I just like to ride my bike. Or put it a different way, I ride my bike to have fun. So therefore, if I'm riding my bike, I'm having fun. Yep. <laughs> Is another way of thinking about it. And that mentality of, in fact, one of my goals for the year, every year has been continue to want, want to and enjoy riding my bike when I'm done with the major event. And, um, and that is a goal. That's a goal. I mean, if I can't achieve that goal, I don't even want to do the event because I love to ride. So um, there was one time... Uh, that uh, there was a couple of really hard times of that trip, uh, huge headwinds across North or South Dakota and, and huge heat and so forth. And then, but when I got down to Mississippi going into Louisiana and then I'm going to make the corner, make the left-hand corner to start heading back up the East coast to the finish. Um, that day was really hot and muggy. And there, there were tons of logging trucks there and they were, playing chicken with me on the road and literally ran me off the road a couple of times, like in a Jeez. couple hour period. It was, it was just ugly. It was just ugly, ugly, you know, world countries worth drivers were these logging trucks in the Southern Mississippi. And, um, and I get to Louisiana and uh, take a nap and I'm ready to go and get through Alabama. And then actually I took a nap in, uh, in Alabama, and I get up, and it's already 99 degrees going, and the high is like 108 as I'm going through the panhandle of Florida that morning. And I just had, for the one time of the whole trip, kind of this sinking feeling in my stomach, like, goodness, you know, yesterday was such a bummer of a day, and today, you know, from a traffic perspective, and today I'm it's already almost a hundred and I have, you know, sun hasn't come out yet. 
and um, and then I just thought it took less than a second or two, and I thought, wait a minute, I get to ride my bike today. I get to ride my bike in Florida. I, you know, I could take a trip to take a bike bike ride in Florida, and I get to do it all day. I get to start right now. So <laughs> hop on my bike, and I put a smile on my face, and I just started enjoying it. And it was like, okay, it's, I'm riding my bike in Florida. <laughs> so, I love it. Uh, so I think there's such a huge mental component to it. Um, I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, suffering and you got to suffer and, and this and that. And it's like, I, I think that's, I don't, I don't buy that approach. I buy the approach. It's supposed to be fun and it is fun and you better be enjoying it because you're, I'm lucky to be doing it. So most of the time, and I would say almost all the time, I am feeling happy that I am on my bike actually being able to ride. And, um, you know, sure, there's moments where, like I said, uh, you know, coming across with a 35 mile an hour headwind all the way across South Dakota. And it's, you know, right up there, you know, in the in the upper 90s. And, you know, I had to go a long way out of my way to get because they went let me through the reservation with COVID and stuff like that. And you know, those are long, hard days when you're when you're working at your power limit and you're going six miles an hour or eight miles an hour or whatever. It's just, but, um, but then you then you just need to embrace it. It's like, okay, I've got this big headwind. I'm going to get to you know, I need to ride into this headwind, and it's just going to be how well can I do that today? Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time focusing on my riding style, how I'm doing, how I'm feeling, you know, and then when when that just when all that just goes, okay, I'm sick of that. Then, you know, looking at the environment is always a good distraction. What's going on? What do I smell? What do I see? That's great. When that all fails, then you put on some music yep. and you lose yourself in old memories of fun times. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that a lot. That reminds, I, I often think about that, uh, the Kurt Vonnegut quote where you're supposed to, you know, pause every once in a while and just look around and think, you know, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And I've thought about yeah. that on some long rides where I'm, you know, getting grumpy, getting ready to be home. And then I think about like, wait, what am I getting home to do? Probably get on my computer and start working. So right. why am I racing to get back? Why am I hoping to get back faster? Right, right. And you can do that with everything. You yeah. know, there's a huge thunderstorm coming from the West. Well, isn't that interesting how that storm cloud is forming? And isn't that interesting mm-hmm. how that lightning seems to be going sideways or what? You know, I mean, you can, yeah, it gives you opportunities to do things that you don't otherwise do. And, you know, long ago, I gave up trying to, you know, ride out on my long rides with the wind at my back, so I'd have it at, or the wind at my front, so I'd have it at my back on the way home and stuff. It's just like, you know, for ultra distance, you're going to get caught in all that stuff and you might as well just enjoy it. I mean, experience it, be part of it, you know, and, uh, and that really helps, you know, we started off, I started off this uh, ride with uh, the first two and a half days of nothing but solid rain and pretty chilly. And I was like, well, okay, but thank God I have my rain pants mm-hmm. and a good jacket and I'm just going to keep going. I guess I can't stop because if I stop, I'm going to be more miserable than if I keep going. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, I love it. And so actually the last thing I really wanted to talk to you about is the after of this, because I mean, it's such a huge undertaking you finish it, it, you know, everything went well, like, you, you know, you got it, you're done. 
what next? Like, what did recovery look like? Did you have a, um, you know, kind of mental, like, I feel like almost like downswing from it where it's like, oh, (laughs) it's over. What now? Yeah. uh, uh, Again, two completely different experiences in the Trans Am. I know you aren't asking about that, but when the Trans Am was done, um, I I felt very comfortable with where I ended up on that and how the race went. I felt physically good. And I had rented a bed and breakfast right two blocks from the finish. And I didn't do anything for the next two days other than sleep and eat. And it felt fantastic. And I, and I recovered well enough. In fact, I ended up having to do a 300 K to qualify for the PVP the next weekend. Uh, So I mean, I was feeling pretty good. And yeah, it took a couple of weeks before I was fully all the way back on, but so be it. Well, this time when I got done, um, I, I was not as smart. Um, I went out to breakfast with my crew right when we finished. Um, I took a short nap and then got, had an interview with a local TV station uh, that afternoon and then went out to dinner with my crew because it was the last time we were going to see each other. And so, I mean, my first day after being done, I and I hadn't slept for two and a half days prior to that. I had only slept for a couple hours. Right. And then the next morning I got up, I did another interview, and then I got in uh, Sophie the van and drove it from the coast back to Minnesota. Oof. Like, and, oh, you know, that's exhausting in and of itself. When I got home, I started to get sick. I mean, my energy level just plummeted to the point where it was hard to just even sit at the kitchen table mm-hmm. and and uh and i felt worse that first week every day that first week and the second week i felt worse um and then the third week i kind of flattened out and started to turn the corner but it was six full weeks before i came back to feeling like okay i'm almost ready to just like be myself again and really wasn't, but I was at least feeling positive and I could get on my bike again and feel like I could go for a ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would strongly advise, I, I would never do what I did at the end of the 48. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. I would strongly advise, you know, take that first day, do nothing but sleep and, uh, and eat mm-hmm. and maybe extend that for another day or two before you even contemplate doing anything that requires any physical activity <laughs> or mental activity for that matter. Yep. <laughs> so uh because the mental side can get uh strained as much if not more than the physical sometimes yeah for sure um and we'll we'll link but the there's a whole documentary about this um do you want to just kind of quickly tell everyone like how how that whole process went how it was having a, a filmmaker along for the ride oh geez yeah okay so yes uh we had um jeremy Roubaix and uh kyle miller um uh, jeremy called me up actually was a friend of a friend before I went and said, boy, and I was looking for a videographer originally with two crews. I was like, this is a big thing. We can make a nice story out of it. I wanted to relate it to um, this ride. I really wanted to use to help inspire people to kind of do, do what they wanted to do to make, to live more purposefully. I mean, that, that was kind of the underlying purpose of the 48 state ride. And uh, actualize uh, uh, sponsored the ride in part, um, which is a company, my company, that uh, is really aimed at helping people identify what their life purpose is, and 
and then how to make a living in a fulfilling fashion towards that purpose. I love that. So, so this was the original plan was two crew, two two sets of crew, and then this videographer crew. Well, when COVID came, you know, as I said, we we cut down the crew to just two people at a time, and I didn't have any time to think about any video of this and the thought of you know going around the country and doing interviews with people and stuff. It's just like, oh God, yeah, there's more than I can think of right now. But Jeremy was pretty persistent that he thought it was a great story and he wanted to do it. And I was like, okay, well, you want to do it, you can do it. Oh, you can follow me along. Well, I had never had it. I mean, I'm not I don't do anything in front of a camera ever in my life, really, other than a selfie here or there nowadays, you know. And and so um, it was pretty wild because the first time we actually met was the night before the race started. Oh, wow. And didn't really have time to actually have an introductory meeting because um, I had just gotten some equipment from my bike that was shipped to the motel that I was staying at the night before I left. And I had to put that on my bike. And so I was actually busy working on my gear right up at the last moment, which I did not feel very good about. And I was kind of, I was kind of testy at myself for being like, you know, why are you so unprepared that you're still working on your bike the night before you're leaving on this 7,000 mile trip? And here's this videographer pointing the camera at me. And it's like, oh gosh. So it took, it took a little bit to start to feel comfortable like living my life with this camera on me all the time mm -hmm. but uh and he he was there quite a bit all the way through the whole thing i mean he and kyle uh drove separately but next to us basically the whole trip and uh i he is uh, jeremy is very interested in producing a full uh, you know uh, you know 90 minute documentary on this he ended up doing interviews with hundreds of people around the country about where they are in their lives and how they're living to their purpose and what what they're proud of and things like that and uh, it, it it makes a good story there's a lot of really good stuff there and one one of the things was i uh, my deal with him was well hey why don't you put together at least something that i could use to help promote my company of actualize and so he put together a short five-minute video that kind of summed up the essence of the trip. And um, that's the link that I hope that you'll link with this. Um, yes. And uh, it turned out to be a, a pretty fair summary of really what happened uh, during the trip. So uh, I hope people view it and enjoy it and find it useful for themselves. Yeah, we will definitely include that in the show notes. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It was really fun talking with you. That was so much like really good advice that I think people can take and, you know, use on their adventures, whether it's a 50 miler or back to back to back to back to back 250 milers. So thank you so much. Oh, it's so, so much my pleasure. And I hope that uh, everyone gets out there and rides and enjoys it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.